Welcome to the checkout, Dr. Rupa Maria, Professor Raj Patel. Great to have you folks talk about Inflamed, by far the greatest book of 2021. Thank you, Errol. <laughs> Good to be here. So, um, would really like it if both of you folks were willing to introduce yourselves and speak a little bit about your inspiration of you know why you chose to uh, to do this book. So, um, we'll start with you, Dr. Rupa. Uh, my name is Rupa Maria. I am a mother of two amazing little boys. Um, I am a, a physician where I work um, in hospital medicine at UC San Francisco. I am a musician, an artist with a band called Rupa and the April Fishes and an activist who organizes with the Do No Harm Coalition. Um, and also now um, I am the executive instigator of a new worker-directed nonprofit called the Deep Medicine Circle, which really came out of wanting to um, work directly in some of the areas that Raj and I describe in the book that have been really inspiring to me. Awesome. And Raj, welcome back to the checkout. Well, uh, thank you, Errol. My name is Raj Patel. I'm uh, calling here from Occupied, Texas. I'm a longtime listener of The Checkout and uh, occasional visitor, big fan. And I also teach at the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs. Uh, and uh, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm the proud co-author of Inflamed with Dr. Rupa Maria. So let, let's dig into the inspiration behind this book. It's a, it's a treatise. It's just quite a tome with an incredible level of detail about its subject matter, um, deep medicine. Uh, Rupa, why don't you tell us a bit about what sort of stoked the flame, so to speak, of why this project needed to happen? Well, I would say my life and my, my work in medicine and um, justice, the healing balm of justice, um, which is something that I look at in my music as well, the, the social advocacy and the work that I do with music, it all sort of led to this um, opportunity to put these ideas down. And they, um, it was such a gift that Raj invited me to write this book with him because these were ideas that had been percolating in my mind for many, many years, um, going in between you know, six months on the road with my band where I would, we would travel to um, you know, the autonomous zones in Chiapas, um, meeting folks who were involved in the Zapatista work down there, um, to the autonomous um, anarchist spaces in Greece during the financial collapse, to places in Ahmedabad, India, and starting to notice different trends and um, different expressions of health and illness. And then going back to the hospital at UCSF and seeing at the bedside, you know, who was getting sick and how people were getting sick. And, you know, why was the young black, um, you know, teenager from Hunter's Point coming in with this rip roaring lymphoma? And why was this person whose parents were farm workers in the Central Valley coming with these bizarre anaplastic thyroid cancers? And why were these things happening? Why was with people coming in with colon cancers younger and younger, inflammatory bowel disease just increasing in um, 
and how commonplace it was becoming in the hospital. And, and so these questions these, um, of why, why, why were people getting sick in these ways um, and led me to look farther than what the explanatory power of our medical science offers right now. Um, because as we see with COVID, it's, it's not simply enough to look at just the science and say, oh, look, see the vaccine will activate your B cells and your T cells. And therefore everything will be fine if we just all vaccinate, because in fact, there's so many structures around us that are um, driving this pandemic. Um, and so that was really where the intersection between Raj and me was so rich and fertile is that he offers um, so much understanding and experience in looking at systems, um, social systems and how they are um, beneficial or, or not beneficial. So it was exciting to go from, you know, the molecular and microscopic all the way to the great macroeconomic um, together um, and to think about why we're getting sick in the ways that we are and what kinds of ways of thinking can help us address both the healing of our bodies and the healing of the planet. And it seemed right on time. We didn't expect to time it with a pandemic, but there you go. Raj, how about you? Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the like what Rupa says, we've been doing this work and sort of thinking about healing uh, and up against different ideas of medicine and different cultures of medicine, particularly, you know, through our uh, exposure to groups who are uh, happily outside the sort of circuits of capitalism and colonialism that we, we talk about in the book, um, and whether that sort of peasant movements or, um, you know, uh, you know, indigenous people in, in the US and beyond. Um, and so that, uh, I mean, I think that the exploration of the book was a way of understanding how the boundaries between food and medicine that we were traversing through our kind of you know engagements with the world were um ones that the rest of the you know the other civilizations find bizarre and i think you know for, for listeners of the checkout um i mean you know, the, 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 there's there appears to be a nice tidy intersection between food and medicine uh, in the wellness industry and in uh, the ways that we can find healthier food or less healthy food. And we can find um, food that has extra probiotics and added this, that, and the other based on, in some cases, just made up facts. And in some cases, uh, the theft of indigenous knowledge that's centuries old and um, before we were on air, you know, the, the theft of actual uh, indigenous microbiomes, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get to talk about again. But what's what was interesting through this, you know, this beautiful collaboration with Rupa was understanding um, that, you know, what counts as, as medicine and as food is contiguous uh, and that the boundaries between them are fairly recent in, you know, colonial capitalism uh, and they, they constitute colonial capitalism. And, you know, for, for again, for listeners at the checkout who, who are like, well, why are we listening about inflammation uh, other than, you know, I'm interested in the anti-inflammatory diet? Well, you know, part of the, the journey that we took on this book was to understand, first of all, where this um, this sort of anti-inflammatory diet bullshittery comes from uh, and why it's packaged as an individual solution for a systemic problem, but then what the systemic answers might be. Um, so that's, that was uh, the, the sort of joy of, you know, coming to, to this subject, which, you know, we've, we've spoken about before, Errol, but, but coming at it with the, the sort of the, the benefit of uh, Rupa's medical wisdom and her activist wisdom was, was, was you know, really not sideways some of the thinking that, that I'd had around this. And it was, that was a, a real privilege. Yeah, and, and Raj, like I've always 
I mean, I've always learned so much from your writings, particularly on the food system, but also because they're always so interdisciplinary. There's, a, there's always such a breadth of, of subject matter. So anybody who, who listens to the checkout, but also may be familiar with your writing, you know, I think this is right up their alley. But let, let's start from like the initial concept. Maybe Rupa, you can help us out since you're a medical doctor. What is inflammation? You hear a lot about well, it. <laughs> got some inflammation in my joints, you know, I'm getting old, but what is, what is this inflammation of which we speak? Well, what's fascinating about um, inflammation or chronic inflammatory disease, which is the, you know, underlies all the diseases that we see, whether it's our arthritis or our Alzheimer's or cancer or inflammatory bowel disease, is that these diseases are unknown in the indigenous Yanomami communities that live in the Amazon. So groups that are living in um, traditional horticultural societies um, and hunter-gatherer societies that are far away from industrial culture um, don't have this kind of inflammatory disease. So one of the things I started to look at when I was traveling um, was the um, way in which these diseases were being expressed and um, how these diseases were expressed with more severity in groups that were socially oppressed, especially those groups who were socially oppressed through the architectures of society that were put in place during colonialism. Um, you know, why is it that the Irish have diseases that look similar to folks in the Native American reservations? Why is it that, you know, um, people in India, even though we um, have you know, thrown off British rule, we haven't thrown off the structures that they laid there and Modi and everybody has stepped in to just assume those same structures and continue the same axes of oppression. Um, and so what is it about societies that are organized through colonial um, mentalities? And so inflammation is the body's response to um, damage or the threat of damage. And those social structures are damaging, basically. That's the, what we came to understand in all this res research and not just damaging to the ecosystems around this, but literally damaging to our bodies um, on the cellular level. So in a normal or in a healthy response, the inflammatory response is activated when, it, let's say in an acute setting, you have a cut, uh, the inflammatory response goes, to, goes into action to um, repair that wound, and then it turns off. And so it's a healing mechanism. Um, but when damage keeps coming around the body, um, that mechanism goes uh, unchecked, it just keeps burning. Um, and then there's the collateral damage that that response causes through all the release of the mediators that are meant to actually heal and bring us back into what we call homeostasis or our, our body's optimum working condition. And so, you know, you can look at something like exposure to radiation, um, too much sun, let's say, and the inflammation that that causes in the skin. Well, the Yanomami community, um, indigenous communities don't have sunburn. And what we learn now is that they're coated in a biofilm on their skin that's created by their micro microbes. Um, and one shower will eliminate with the soap that we use will eliminate all those microbes. So like 10,000 years or 20,000 or, you know, whatever it's, it, the, we say like, this is the, the earth belongs to the microbes and we're just living in their world. And that's really true. Um, but the way that we live in colonial societies is that we have um, relegated them to the other. We have sanitized our lives. We have separated ourselves from the entire web of life that actually 
gives us health and modulates inflammatory disease. So Yanomami people can spend all day in the sun, they'll never get sunburned um, because that, that those critters on the skin are mitigating that inflammatory response. They're turning the sunshine into something else that the body can absorb and be used. Whereas, um, you know, just as our skin has been denuded of microbes, our insides have been denuded and the gut microbiome is such a powerful um, mitigator of inflammatory disease. Um, and we're missing those microbes um, because we've fallen out of relationship to the world around us. And that's really what we look at is the mindset that brought us here, the errors of enlightenment thought that got spread all over the world, um, that separated us from our duties to each other, that separated us from our duties to the world around us that support our health. And that advanced a concept of health that was highly individualistic um, and caused us to abandon our sense of responsibility to one another and to the, and to the natural world that, you know, that, that keeps us healthy. And so this um, book was an opportunity to really trace those thoughts back to a time and a place and to look at how that has shaped our health um, and identify that the, 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 the pathology is not in the body the body is responding quite in, in a healthy way to a pathological world around us. And so how do we undo that world and create one that um, will return the care we give to it with care for ourselves and our bodies? I think the other concept that this um, amazing book hinges on is colonialism. And Maybe Raj, it would be helpful if you could help us understand what you guys mean by colonialism in terms of the uh, historic economic sense, but also to the present day and for Rupa's point about, you know, political structures that get reproduced. Like what is colonialism and why, why does it matter in a book about health and food? Well, so, so, I mean, colonialism predates capitalism. And um, in fact, what well, one of the early examples that we use is the example of the Roman Empire. They were going around uh, imposing certain kinds of order, uh, certain kinds of uh, laws around who could vote, or who could participate in society, who, who were, you know, the, the conditions under which some uh, of the web of life could be owned, including other people. Uh, so, you know, regimes of slavery accompanied uh, the Roman Empire. And in particular, the Romans faced uh, a, a, you know, a problem when, you know, after they conquered other cities, uh, they wanted to make sure that these cities understood that they were part of the Roman Empire, that they could enjoy many of the fruits of being part of the Roman Empire, but they also had to understand that they were a bit different. Uh, and from, you know, the, the, they had a way of categorizing uh, these these other cities, uh, and these were sort of civitatis uh, im, uh, im, libere et immune. Uh, and that means that they were free um, cities, but that they were not subject to the same munera, the duties that Romans were. And so they couldn't really be the same quality of citizens. These, these conquered, uh, but nonetheless free cities were uh, both part of the empire, but a little bit different. And from this idea of munera comes immunera, like this is what the, uh, the, the, the cities were, and they were immune. In other words, they were uh, not subject to the same duties. They were part of uh, the empire, but sort of second class-ish. Uh, and from this language of self and other, of belonging, but not belonging, um, has, has come uh, you know, modern ideas of immunity. Uh, so, 
I'm you know, putting a pin in that because I'm sure we'll come back to it, but it's just important to remember that the colonization implies uh, the imposition not only of order, but of language and of structures of thinking. Now, when that colonialism intersects with capitalism, uh, then you've got a particularly toxic combination uh, because you're not just imposing certain kinds of order about who, who's in and who's out, um, but you impose uh, structures of order around what's exploitable and how and why. Uh, and that, that matters because you know, th th those structures of thinking still persist now. Like, you know, for example, uh, when we think of Yanomami communities as, you know, hunter-gatherer um, in Shiva quotes, I mean, you know, th th that's colonial language right there. Um, you know, to have an idea of communities that, that sort of walk around and be like, oh, isn't nature fantastic? All I have to do is reach out my hand and sort of pop something in my mouth and now I shall go gather over here, as opposed to recognizing that in fact, you know, uh, in, in indigenous uh, uh, ecologies are, usually tended very uh, you know rigorously and with a great deal of knowledge right and, you know, but, but the, the 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 term that's used for that swidden agriculture is so foreign that, that uh, sometimes we, we you know we, we have to default to hunter gatherer but we're always always using it in sugar quotes um but the, the, what's important to remember here is that that what colonial capitalism does just as with regular colonialism but colonial capitalism imposes orders about who can think and who can feel um, and what that means is that uh, there are certain classes of being that are whose suffering doesn't matter. You know, whether that's animals, whether that's obviously sort of uh, plants and, and and microbes, but also certain classes of of humans uh, who are eligible to be enslaved and owned, uh, who are eligible to be exploited until they uh, worked to death, even today in prisons, for example, uh, or in, in you know, as part of the transatlantic, you know, as part of the global uh, uh, trade in modern day slavery, which today still traffics in more people than, than were trafficked by the transatlantic slave trade. So again, who can think and who can feel is uh, you know, one of the, the sort of structures of thinking and exploitation that accompanies colonial capitalism. But colonialism always imposed a, a similar kind of order. And what capitalism does is sort of weaponize that uh, and conscript uh, us uh, to its order. And to the extent that it normalizes ways of thinking and feeling, uh, we are, we're, we're a part of that world, whether we like it or not. And part of, you know, the struggle is to recognize the, the, the extent to which we've been implicated and to then struggle to break free. A lot of the um, sort of meta narrative in the book feels to me like challenging of the worldview of the cosmology you know, the, the, the depersonalization of these colonial relationships to the point where unless it's pointed out and explained, you know, a lot of folks take for granted as normal, right? And maybe Rupa will start with you on this question is how do these cosmologies, these worldviews present relative to, you know, our healthcare system and how they seek to understand you know, the different systems that inflammation impacts, but also how they seek to remedy them and the limitations with that. Well, I think about how most patients don't feel heard by their doctor. So when we think about who is admitted as a knowledge keeper in a colonial um, setting and who is not, and a patient is not really considered the expert in their bodies. The you know physician or the medical system is considered. There's three caterpillars in there now. Okay. Three. Did you Excuse put in another one? 
I love caterpillars. <laughs> Sorry, we, we have a monarch sanctuary here in our oh, home, and we've been overwintering monarchs, and now there's all these caterpillars, and so that's we so cool. are we're homeschooling, we're studying, we're collecting, and we're Wonderful. making sure they stay safe so that they can um, go on and do their journey. Excuse me, but awesome. um, so and children, <laughs> children are another group of people who you know should be seen and not heard, and that is part of a colonial uh, yeah. capital, like a colonial cosmology. You know, during Victor Victorian era um, England, um, but so I think that uh, you know anyone who has experienced going to the doctor and feeling like their doctor is not listening, that they interrupt them within the first 11 seconds, which is, I think what we, we saw in the, the data, um, that doctors feel like they understand, you know, your body, your lived experience better than you do. Um, that's an experience of that worldview and how it impacts health. The fact that black babies, um, survive their, you know, neonatal time, um, three times more if they have a black doctor is another example of the negligence that is shown in terms of organizing who matters and how they matter and which lives matter. And that is, you know, um, systemic throughout healthcare and medicine um, because medicine was never really organized um, to take care of those people whose presence it was a part of conquering. Um, so when, you know, medicine was brought along with the missionaries and the military to these places, um, the colonial hospitals and medical clinics were there to keep the colonizers healthy primarily. And if a disease was spreading amongst the colonized and they had to address it so that the, you know, the colonizers wouldn't get sick as well. Um, and you see that with infectious disease and malaria, we discussed that in the book, um, but it is a part of the, the way of organizing. And so when we look at COVID right now, and we're seeing, oh, you know, we have a 70% um, vaccination rate, so we can all just take off our masks and go eat indoors. And we saw what happened with that, because that wasn't really, you know, looking at who that 70% included and didn't include, and it didn't include the people who were working in the back of the kitchen. Um, a lot, a large amount of them in this area tend to be undocumented, and they tend to be Latin, uh, Latinx. And so communities, um, you know, are not seen and counted in the same ways or with the same sophisticated understanding of the social structures um, and how disease moves in those, uh, along those lines and, and the gradients of power. And so um, for me, one of the things that struck me when writing the book was going back and reading some of the studies um, around how we came to understand inflammation and our inflammatory response and fever. And reading some of these studies um, back in the 1800s where these scientists would put, you know, rabbits into boxes and slowly heat them up to see what happened really um, was a moment where I remember I had to call Raj and say, I just can't write anymore. I can't, I need a mental health day. I just need to go cry for like a day. Like realizing that the science that I had learned in service of taking care of people was based on such horrific violence towards animals. And that dissection of care between myself and the animals uh, that, that that knowledge was gained from was a part of the medicine that I practice. And as I went on in writing this book and researching it was understanding the layers of which violence had been encoded into the 
understanding that I was, I inherited as a medical student, as a science student, um, biomedical science student in, in, you know, the Western paradigm. And I was wondering, like, what does it do when we study our science from that perspective? If our science is, is gained, our knowledge is gained through the act of severing our care for other animals or other beings to advance our own knowledge in service of our own health. And is there a way of learning and conducting ourselves through science that doesn't do that? And yes, there is, and there are, and there have been for thousands of years. And a lot of those are traditional, like traditional knowledge systems and traditional medical systems. And so that was, um, for me, a really interesting thing is, you know, peeling back the layers of power within medicine itself and seeing how it's not surprising then if we look at the outcomes we're getting right now and, you know, black and indigenous and Latinx people are um, suffering more in this healthcare system. It's not, it's not a shock. Um, so people think, you know, well, we can just add an office of equity and, and, you know, give everyone a, a yearly training and things will get better. And it's like, no, actually the whole architecture, the whole hierarchical system has to be taken apart and rebuilt and rebuilt along structures of, uh, you know, flattening hierarchies and also structures of care. And what does that look like? And that is the act of decolonizing. That is like, that is the work of changing the outcomes, not through adding on a little cosmetic performative land acknowledgement, um, but changing the actual power structures that medicine was built upon and insisting upon um, care as a praxis at, at all levels, at every single level. Um, and so it was a, a real heavy thing for me to write this book in the middle of COVID, um, you know, going in between being in the hospital, coming back, running away from wildfires, coming back, um, because everything that we were writing about looking from 400 years ago was manifest today. Um, and those are the connections that we really hoped um, to share with people. So Raj, I'd like you to talk a bit about the limitations of addressing inflammation or inflammatory response through capitalist medicine and capitalist food systems. You know, our current, I mean, you, you actually dropped that hint of, of talking about like the, the wellness industry and, you know, this sort of compartmentalization as well as, you know, uh, profit model of addressing, you know, these inflammatory responses, the stuff that you guys are documenting in particular how it, you know, adversely and disproportionately impacts uh, people of color and, you know, the poor. Um, and so I'd like you to talk about that, but also framing it in the limitations of individual responsibility in, in how we're talking about and, and addressing these issues. Well, you know, it's, it's been really interesting to see how the wellness industry is so tightly associated uh, with, COVID, COVID vaccine denialism uh, and white people. Uh, and I think that these, you know, the, the, this all is of a piece um, because uh, th there is an individualist mode that is, uh, that, that certainly, you know, we see in the organic food movement, right? Why, why is it that um, organic food has this reputation of being 
uh, you know, sort of a, a white bourgeois uh, activity. Uh, what, th there are modes of engaging with organic food that, of course, predate um, the, the you know the, the the rise of white supremacy. That there are about sort of connections to uh, the web of life, and that you know what 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 we now call organic is merely just the way that things are done uh, in a rich agroecological system. But now, um, you know, the, the marketing of of organic is. Uh, uh, you know, essentially a purity test. It's it's a way of um, making sure that uh, the Monsanto's grubby fingers do not contaminate your body. That uh, you know, you and your family, for whom you are responsible when you go to the farmers market to shop, are um, the uh, you know the the, the 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 guardians of uh, a a kind of biophysical purity that um, can only be maintained through the the correct kinds of certifications. Uh, and it doesn't matter at all that in fact the best reason for being you know, for, for buying organic is to prevent uh, workers, usually workers of color, from being uh, exposed to uh, the toxins that the American chemical industry has managed to sneak uh, through the regulatory process. And so um, the idea of individual bodily care you know, removed from the duties of care that we have to one another is precisely the mode of organic food that we see now uh, being applied to the symptom of uh, inflammation. And so, you know, there are uh, ways of thinking about treating infl inflammation that are precisely about sort of loading your body with probiotics. Now, look, I, I, do I uh, make sure that my body, my, you know, my diet is rich with probiotics? I do. But do I think that that's, uh, you know, in any way sufficient to be able to, uh, to understand the, 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 you know, the, the real reasons why our bodies are so denuded of these things? Absolutely not. You know, you, you don't treat systemic extinction with trying to create you know, your own safari park in your gut. Uh, that's just not how you do things, right? Because uh, the forces of extinction exist at the gates. And until you tackle those forces of extinction, all you're doing is trying to, you know, prolong a, a, a dying kind of Jurassic Park in your stomach. Uh, and uh, that's not enough. That's not how uh, you you create the kinds of systemic change that we need. So, you know, before we came on air, we were talking about um, the the story about Yanomami poop. Uh, and I, actually, I wonder if, if I can throw it to you to, to to talk a little bit more about that because you've you you know you, you were talking so wonderfully about it before we before we uh, we went live. Well, there's just a you know with the lack of inflammatory disease in um, indigenous groups like the Yanomami, um, the folks who are not highly impacted but live very removed from modern industrialized societies, they have um, a robust biodiversity to their, their microbiome that we just don't have and their inflammatory disease is virtually non-existent. Um, and so you have these scientists now who are literally licensing Yanomami poop um, and every other orifice that they've cultured um, to create products um, for industrialized people to try to rewild their gut. And this to me speaks to a, a grave misunderstanding of what the microbiome is, which is not so much a remedy but a, a, a living reflection of the kinds of relationships that we are actively engaged in. And what has been so interesting to me, um, if I were to think of a summary point of the book, is that if colonialism was about rupturing critical relationships that have kept us healthy, um, repairing those relationships um, is, is the way to 
um, find a, a different kind of balance um, than what has been, you know, occurring over the last 600 years. So if cutting down the forest to sell off every tree is, you know, how we think of putting land to use, um, repairing those relationships and caring for those trees and caring for those ecosystems and allowing the um, rich uh, relationships of the forest to thrive is um, in participating in that thriving, not just sort of leaving it there and go, oh, now this is conserved, but actually engaging and participating um, and living in with the forest, not apart from it, not a part of like us versus nature, but us there as a part of um, nature. And so it's repairing those relationships. And um, the microbiome is a great place to start. And that doesn't mean going and getting it, you know, from the butt of an indigenous person, but it means recreating those healthy relationships ourselves. And that is what's so beautiful about this work is that everyone can do it. Um, it. But it does mean that we must demand a change to those, um, those entities that are causing the ongoing damage. We must stop those damaging entities, whether they're the pipelines going through Minnesota or all over, you know, all over the world. But we have to actually stop the fossil fuel industry. We have to stop the application of um, chemicals that are damaging soil fertility um, all around the world. We have to stop the industrial agricultural practices that destroy the soil architecture and that don't feed us anyway. We have to start prioritizing the um, the well well-being and support of small to medium farmers that are feeding the world um, with healthy food. Um, and so those are the kinds of things when, when you realize that it, it is about reconnecting those relationships, that is something we can all do and we cannot do it as individuals. This is not an individual therapy. This is not an individual fix. This is something that we have to do collectively and that we can do. Um, and what is exciting as we saw with COVID, you know, when humans shut up and stop taking up so much space, um, nature and, and the life around us rebounds and it will start coming in and filling in the space. Um, and that was a really interesting experience as watching you know, how much um, the animals around us here in the Bay Area um, started taking up more space um, just because we weren't. Um, and so, I'm excited to see, you know, the more we insist upon stopping the damage that's causing inflammation and repairing those relationships that help us heal, um, how quickly we'll be able to see some of these um, improved outcomes without having to steal or license the microbiome of people who know how to do it, um, but learning from them and saying, okay, what are they doing and how can we actually do that? You know, it doesn't mean go live in a grass hut, um, but it does mean re-enter proper relationship with all the entities around us that are responsible for our thriving. I love what you're saying about repair. Is uh, we've you know we've talked a lot about tikkun olam, which is a secular Jewish concept of repair of, of healing. Um, so the the thing that you guys sort of counterpoint colonialism to in the book. To me, it's, it's very much about abolition is the way I, I've been reading. And I, I kind of want to get a definition of a, at least the conceptualization of abolition. Because when I, I still think of it, I, I, I still think of uh, Garrison and Douglas and, you know, and slavery, you know, to the point of what you were saying that there's even more slavery now. But what 
is the context of abolition, rel abolition relative to how these colonial relationships impact our you know, health and well-being, the, the power dynamics? How is this the counterpoint to that? And what does that look like, not only in day-to-day -day life, but you know, in these broader socioeconomic relationships? And Raj, I'd like you to start tackling that one. Abolition. Um, so, I mean, abolition is the positive uh, program of uh, healing the, the wounds that capitalism has caused, uh, capitalist colonialism has caused. Uh, and that means uh, not merely sort of defunding the, the institutions that uh, it, you know, that perpetuate the, those, those harms. Um, but, you know, I mean, the, the, the abolitionist call to defund the police is also a proactive call for uh, new forms of work, new forms of employment, new forms of care, new forms of, uh, you know, of uh, re-embedding uh, communities in the soil and, uh, you know, with one another. Uh, now, so, so, so the work of abolition is not just about sort of throwing open the prison doors, but also uh, to the, the long work of, of de-schooling. Uh, of sort of, of unschooling uh, ideas of white supremacy, of patriarchy, of uh, the sort of carceral logic of capitalism. Uh, and that's a very positive program. But, you know, people think of ab abolitionism as merely the sort of breaking of chains. Uh, but it is uh, far more aligned to the ideas of the Green, Black and uh, Red New Deal, uh, uh, which is about creating new forms of care and repair. Uh, and so, you know, the, you, we, we mentioned repair. Uh, part of repair is reparation, obviously. Um, uh, and that reparative work is uh, about, you know, reparations for colonialism. Um, you know, I, I think the, the figure that we were floating around in the book was uh, that uh, Britain, for instance, owes India $45 trillion. Um, uh, and that's a lowball count uh, of you know for, for the damage caused by uh, British colonialism of India. Uh, you know the, the, the U.S. government uh, owes it, you know the the, the nations that it uh, still at least recognizes in the breach here. Uh, but you know the U.S. government owes for colonialism here and abroad uh, you know in vast magnitudes more than that. Uh, and you know we in the global north owe the global south for our ongoing. Uh, destruction of the world uh, that, that they are dependent upon, and you know, the, the, you know, the rule of thumb, of course, being that if you didn't uh, cause climate change, you're the one most likely to suffer the consequences. Um, and you know, th so those kinds of reparative acts are important, and part of that is the recognition uh, it, that abolition is required in those moments. Um, you know, it, it, uh, reparations for climate damage, for example, is an abolitionist act and needs to be narrated that way. We need we need these stories that tell us that in fact, we were always in relationship and those relationships were exploitative and genocidal. And now we are in relationships that are about healing. Uh, but only abolition has the power really to, to give us the, those kinds of narratives, those kinds of understandings of uh, domination and of emancipation and of healing that comes uh, as a result of uh, recognizing that the damage has been done all around, obviously disproportionately to, to certain communities, but that we're living in a damaging society for everyone uh, and that abolition can offer a cure a bomb for all involved. How does that look on the institutional level for each of you? You're both um, obviously both well along the, the path to committing class suicide as Amalcar Cabral would, would, would call it. Um, 
in relative to your to your professional careers. But how does how does that look relative to the institutions within which either of you work in? Um, you know, Rupa with you in a medical institution, Raj, in an institution of higher learning here at uh, UT Austin. Rupa, maybe you can start us all on this one. Abolition for medicine um, really is the decolonizing of medicine. And um, I think it would start with, at least where I work, getting rid of the C-suite, getting rid of insurance, private health insurance, getting rid of the capitalist motive in healthcare um, and restructuring healthcare spaces as worker run spaces. Um, if you look at the pandemic response, a lot of the burnout and trauma and PTSD we're all facing as healthcare workers is coming from the decisions that have been made by healthcare executives, not by nurses, not by doctors. Um, and that to me is just like an, an, a nail in the moral coffin of our healthcare, um, of our healthcare situation, because we had 30 nurses walk off the ICU of UCSF this year because they were being short staffed and asked to cover two patients. Like in the midst of a pandemic, you'd think that this was a time you'd beef up your staffing, you'd beef up, you'd give everyone a bonus, you'd give everyone hazard pay, you'd give everyone the testing that you know the NFL at least got. Um, but we didn't get those things. We didn't get the testing we wanted, the PPE we wanted, the um, the you know staffing we wanted, the care to the patients that we wanted. Um, those decisions were all being made by executives. And so part of it is really um, looking at why we have extractive practices, economically extractive practices in medicine. Why do we have entities that take the money out um, away from the system, away from patients and providers? Um, and what does that leave us with? Um, and, and how does that recreate more of the trauma and harm and debt and stress and you know, disease that we're seeing by the way in which we've structured the healthcare industry? Um, so I think um, part of that you know, in, in slow steps is abolishing the private healthcare industry and getting single payer. Um, that's like a slow step. Um, and then the bigger step is like restructuring these entities to be um, worker run. And from a university perspective, I think that, you know, I have had several black medical students ask me this year about leaving medicine. Like it doesn't, it's traumatizing for me to be here. I don't see an academic career that feels comfortable to me. I don't understand how to be a doctor in this system. And it's hard to sit there and tell them, yeah, no, just suck it up and do it. Like you'll be fine. Um, because you can see what they are experiencing and the consciousness with which they're coming to this work. So how can those students actually change our medical education system. I would love to see a system where their priorities are made our priorities so that those who have been most injured through the system of medical education can re-educate us and help us unlearn um, what doesn't work and what we should be, you know, calibrating our um, understanding towards. So I think that a lot of it has to do with the flipping of things on their heads and um, hearing from those who've never been heard. Um, looking to at where I work and um, the racial segregation of, you know, why are all the people in patient transport black? 
why are all the cafeteria workers black and brown or like 90% of them? Um, why are all the frontline um, people greeting, you know, people at the desks, Filipino and Latino? Um, what, what, you know, what are their perspectives of healthcare um, in the industry that we're working in? And how do we bring those voices into understanding what a, what a safe healthcare environment looks like? Um, and so that's, you know, that's the kind of work that is really shifting of, you know, class race um, hierarchies that have been established through colonialism um, and inviting a different kind of dialogue and, and exchange. And it would also require my institution to be accountable to where it is. So UCSF sits on stolen Ramatushaloni land. Um, how does that land go back to indigenous people? And then how does the institution of health become um, one that is about repair? Um, so UCSF has turned a blind eye and actually been complicit in the poisoning of people at Bayview Hunters Point from the environmental toxicities that are there. There are several scientists from UCSF that have been used to you know, rubber stamp the mayor's um, interest in giving a Lennard Corporation the ability to start building in Hunter's Point when there's you know, no clear signs that the radioactive material that have been there have been cleaned up. And whole blocks of people in Bayview Hunter's Point have gotten cancer. Um, I helped one young man die, he was 26 of lymphoma, just saw his mom in the, can in the hospital with pancreatic cancer. And she, you know, I haven't seen her in a couple of years. And, we sat together and she's like, everyone on my block has cancer. Every single person on my block has cancer. And so how has our institution been complicit in that um, ongoing violence? So this isn't a fait accompli, oh, it all happened so long ago. Why are we still talking about this? This is happening today, um, you know, that you have black people living in Hunter's Point coming into the hospital with lungs that look like smokers of 50 years who've never smoked a day in their lives. And you know the the hot you know the the Department of Public Health will tell you oh it's because they live near the highway but what about the you know the the dust from Bayview Hunters Point which is you know where the ships that loaded the bombs that went to bomb Nagasaki and Hiroshima were loaded from that shipyard where the bombs were blasted in the Pacific testing the nuclear weapons and that those um, radioactive um, water seawater would end up on the ships and then sandblasting the ships there, all that dust. So many workers have gotten sick and they're all people from the immunists, the second class, the invisible, the undercommons here in the United States. And so, you know, that is, you know, really looking at how we as institutions of health um, have also been institutions of violence. And so how do we correct that as we start taking account of our participation and then start repairing? Um, and that's the work some of us are doing through the Do No Harm Coalition at UCSF, a group of um, health workers who are organizing to look at, you know, how we have been complicit and then how we can change, how we can change that by holding our institutions accountable and also starting to work more directly with community and mobilizing what we call our white coat privilege to serve their agendas. Sorry, that was a long answer. Um, I'm blown away. That was heartbreaking and amazing. Raj, did you want to tackle that as well a little bit? Yeah, um, I mean, you know, the, the university is a site of immense privilege uh, and of policing uh, of knowledge and of bodies. And, uh, you know, part of what we're 
excited about in this book is science. We're we're very pro science. We you know we're we're, we're not uh, saying don't get vaccinated because in fact we're saying get vaccinated. Uh, we're we're not you know we're we're not peddling uh, sort of specious ideas of of harm. We are relying on the best kinds of peer reviewed knowledge. Um, and the university often has been a place of policing who gets to count as a peer. And so what what we're very excited about is the idea of democratizing that, you know, the, the possibilities of being a peer and having one's knowledge counted. Uh, and that doesn't mean that, you know, the university should have more scholarships for indigenous people. Um, it does mean decolonizing the university um, because it's it's not about in, entry into the club. The club itself is uh, is bankrupt. Um, and that's, you know, I mean, so, so that, I mean, at some level, of course, here, here at the University of Texas, um, we have our little culture war spats. So we've, we've just had, uh, you know, our university is particularly good at laundering oil money, uh, money that is used, uh, is made through the destruction of the planet and then turned into um, things like the Gutenberg Bible. We have one of those here. We have, a, you know, the world's first photograph. We have, you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's collection. And now soon we'll have an oil funded Institute of Liberty. Um, so that uh, undergraduates and, and school children will be taught about liberty. I'm going to use my liberty, by the way, uh, to commit a crime here. I, I would like to uh, just announce that I intend to aid and abet uh, anyone who uh, is looking to uh, access reproductive health in order to avoid a forced birth, uh, and I invite people to come and sue me. Uh, but I also want to just recognize that, that those kinds of sort of pronouncements, uh, criminal as they are uh, under the new Texas abortion law, um, are uh, part of, of what it is that, that is happening, uh, you know, just under the, the sort of general ambit of the policing of certain kinds of speech and certain kinds of knowledge that is, has a long capitalist history. You know, knowledge about what, what women can do with their bodies and what they can't. Uh, you know, uh, knowledge about what people of color can and can't say. Uh, that it means taking a very strong, uh, I mean, uh, uh, taking a view at the privileges that the university has afforded and committing class suicide there. I mean, the university is not just a place of uh, money laundering uh, as a sort of large-scale philanthropy uh, is in general, but it is also a site of um, things like uh, liability protection, so that, uh, you know, capitalist institu institutions that would normally have to pay their social debts to uh, experiment on crops or experiment on animals or experiment on other human beings are afforded a safe space here where uh, they can pretend that they're in the 15th century again. Uh, and uh, the university's liability protection regime is in fact uh, a, a very important colonial holdover for capitalism, um, where all kinds of things are permitted here that are not in regulated capitalist society because it's a site of learning and therefore experimentation and therefore look what we can do with our experimental protocols. So uh, I, I do think it's, it's important to, to recognize that this that these institutions do need to be uh, decolonized. Uh, and for me, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, you know, both on the side of trying to engage with research projects that are not in the university, uh, but also recognizing that within the university, there are still spaces where we can practice the arts of decolonization that really are the arts of care. Um, so my classroom looks very different now from the way it did, you know, 10 years ago, where, um, you know, I, I was just sort of following uh, rather unquestioningly the, the sort of habits of uh, the university where I was lecturing and trying to be as entertaining as possible. But, you know, it, essentially it was creating a um, a sort of stage, you know, you know, a sort of performative space in which, you know, you, you might also have been at the theatre and the lecture theatres are what they're called and operating theatres are what they're still called. Um, but 
if we remove the theatre uh, or if we reimagine what it is to perform, then the classroom becomes a site of care. Uh, and my, my classrooms now are mainly about caring for one another. And of course, we do reading and we look after each other as we do the reading. Uh, and uh, and we look after each other as we do the research. But that research is all about care uh, rather than about investigating and prying knowledge from the ignorant. Um, and that's slowed down my research considerably. And I love it for that because the research is so much better now. Um, and this book, you know, it was, for example, uh, the work of care. We, we, you know, we checked in with each other every day. We, we made sure that we were on, you know, on the same page, literally and emotionally, you know, and that I think has made this book a product of a very caring process of research and knowledge that um, I'm very proud of. And it was a great pleasure to, to, to do with you, Rupert. Thank you, Raj. I also feel the same way when I think of how hard the book was to write, um, because it was hard. It was hard to look at the material. It was hard to write it at the time we were writing it. Um, the, the loving care um, between us was was so so deep and then also the care for the folks whose stories we included in the book um so uh, elders and teachers of both of us who have informed our own understanding and and um it's fun to see them with the book now and and hear their thoughts seeing the whole the whole thing um and that you know uh, that was probably the most valuable part of this this work is you know reconnecting with patients whose uh, patients' families, the patients who have deceased who we included in the book, and going through the process of telling them about the book and what we were writing and and it was really um, beautiful because there's lots of big ideas in the book, you know, big you know big concepts. But then there's these very tender uh, relationships with people and with communities that we both um, care for very deeply. So I, I hope that that comes through getting the feedback from people right now has been really, really lovely. Well, Rupa and Raj, you both have been so generous with your time knowing that how busy each of you are. We're at an hour. So I just wanted to wrap this up with one, you know, just final question of anything more that you'd like to share with our audience or any, any takeaways that they, that they should have um, about, about your work and your motivations and, and what you're hoping folks get out of this. Um, I guess I would hope that people when they read it, because it is big and it is, um, by that I mean it takes on large concepts um, and sometimes looking at the challenges, the challenges we're facing in the world, are, it's overwhelming, the, the COVID and oh, climate collapse. And um, I hope that when people see this, they, they can find an analogy where they are, um, the communities where they are um, to get to work, to roll up their sleeves and get to work in a very specific way. Um, and, and that if that work is not directly challenging the structures of power, um, to pick, to pick another version of it, which doesn't mean it has to be confrontational. Um, and, and I say that because what we're doing right now on, we're working on a 38 acre farm with uh, California native folks and non-native folks um, to bring about a, a, a version of farming that we call farming as medicine, 
Um, we're liberating food from the market economy and defining farming as an act of care um, and returning land to indigenous people. And um, it's, a, it's a powerful, beautiful project that is challenging those lines of power, but not in a, you know, in your face or confrontational way, but just by showing a better way of doing it. Um, and so there's room for everyone in this turning, this moment of turning the power structures. And um, I hope everyone will find their place and just start getting to work because it's really time. Raj, anything you want to add? Um, I, as a treasury owl of the deep medicine circle, uh, it would it would be remiss of me not to encourage folk to just Google deep medicine circle and see what you find. Uh, and because I mean it, it's it's phenomenal work, um, but also you know I mean I I, I do think that that uh, there is I mean this may feel like just so much woke stuff you've got to do. Oh God, now I've got to worry about decolonization and, and abolition, whatever that means. And oh, this, I mean, but it, I mean, I think part of the, the joy of what we've learned of, you know, through this book and through conversations with, with you, Errol, as well, I mean, is that this is, this is the work of liberation. This, this isn't like just uh, a duty of, uh, of suffering. This is the duties of freedom, and this is the duties of, of being freer. Uh, and those munera, those, those ways of being in the world are incredibly emancipating and liberating. And yes, there's a lot of work ahead, but what would you want? No work ahead? No, everyone wants the work. I mean, we, we've, we've got to put the work in. Um, and it's okay, and it's not only okay, but it's beautiful, and it's healing, and it's fun, uh, and it involves three butterflies at least. Uh, and you know, th there's there's plenty of joy. There's so much of it around, uh, and it's just exciting to be able to share that with you, Errol, and with the, the listeners of the checkout. Thanks so much for having us, Professor Raj Patel, Dr. Rupa Maria, the notorious, the legendary, the inflamed. Thank you so much for being on the checkout. This is an amazing conversation. And thank you so much for doing all that work to write that book. Thank you, Errol. Yeah.